Hi, everyone. I'm Josh. And I'm Jim. And this is The Dapper Meeple. This show is about our love of gaming, the games we play, and the gaming community around this passion. So pull up a chair, put on your Dapper Meeple hat, and join us at the table. Hey kids, remember, this is an adult podcast and may contain adult language. Also, Dapper Meeple hat, not required. On this episode, we're talking new Ticket to Ride, new Magic decks, and a big gaming expo in the UK. But gaming isn't all board games and sunshine, my friends. So we're going to have to look at some of the less than good happenings in the gaming community right now, and maybe what we can do to make the world a better place. Then our crowdfunding roundup is a video game, dice that travel well, and a little supernatural paranoia. All that and more on this episode of The Dapper Meeple. So we got summer in full swing right now at our house, which for me means like half the people in the house stop doing things. Kids are out of school. Uh, the girlfriend's a teacher, so she's off for a while. So, and it is a busy summer, but uh, let's talk about what's going on and what's new and exciting. Yeah, so we got a lot of really cool stuff that has come out recently. Um, a lot of stuff that is going to be coming out soon. Uh, just some things we want to talk about. Uh, the biggest thing, I think, as fans of the Ticket to Ride games uh, that we are, is the brand new Ticket to Ride Legacy game coming out. So, um, as we've discussed many times before, we believe Ticket to Ride is one of one of a very short list of games to get if you are new to gaming, have never really played before, or if you're wanting to introduce people to the hobby. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have talked a, a ton on the things that Ticket to Ride does right, um, including ways that it's just better than Monopoly. <laughs> Uh, but we got an announcement uh, by a very cryptic little video of a Ticket to Ride Legacy that was coming out. Uh, fortunately, we now have some more information as to what it is, what we're looking at. Um, so the game is Ticket to Ride Legends of the West. So I, I'm interested to see how they do this as a legacy. Yeah. Um, they they have put out some information though that. It's completely like once you're done with the campaign, it's completely replayable. It's a 12 game campaign. Yep. So let's talk about the designer. So um, there are three big designer names that are involved in this project. The first one is obviously the original creator of Ticket to Ride, Alan Moon. Um, And then we have the two that are coming in for the legacy aspect of this. So they're the co-creators behind Pandemic Legacy, Rob DeVal and Matt Leacock. These guys have the pedigree of some of the best legacy games that have ever been made. Right. Pandemic um, Legacy's got, what, three Three games versions out now? of it now. Um, also, Risk Legacy, these guys were involved in, which is kind of the original, one of the original legacy style games that actually was good. That's actually one of my bucket list games. I still have not got my hands on it because we played Risk when we were younger, yeah, but yeah. it was regular Risk. And looking back on it now, we might have caused our, some of our own trauma with that. <laughs> Um, but the risk legacy is supposed to be such a good game. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so, yeah, so it's definitely on our list to play. Um, so we obviously are fans of legacy games. So having these two guys be on board with this automatically escalates this up into something that I at least want to take a look at. Yeah. Um, 
again, I am interested to see how they do the legacy aspect with Ticket to Ride. Mm-hmm. Uh, I imagine it's going to be something like the board gradually like opens up kind of thing. Uh, but I mean, who knows? We'll see how it goes because there isn't a whole lot of information out there exactly how it's going to be played. But it will be debuted at Gen Con this year. Nice. So we are planning on being in attendance um, to see that and a few other games. So definitely we'll be excited to take a look at it and then report back. And I'm sure it will be a fantastic Gen Con wrap up episode. Right. The game is set to be released on November 3rd. The only thing that I am hesitant on right now is the price tag. Like, I mean, you're buying an actual train car. Yeah. <laughs> it's 120 bucks. Yeah. Um, and now I, I'm curious to know what all comes in the box. Like how much game are you getting for 120 bucks? Now I do know that the pandemic legacy games, um, they were more expensive than standard pandemic. Sure. They were about double the cost. So this kind of checks out as far as that pricing goes. I'm curious if you can use your current ticket to ride pieces for it. Uh, at least maybe when it's done, because we have custom like die cast trains right. for ours, because my wife loves that game. And, you know, so I'm curious about things like that, but it's definitely something to keep an eye out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think um, it's not a game I would have picked as a this needs a legacy version. Sure. Right. That's what I'm really like I said, I'm really interested to see how they make it a legacy game. Um, but yeah, so keep an eye on that again. Uh, it's supposed to be debuting at Gen Con and then released on November 3rd. Now, next thing that we have coming up, even though we, um, kind of ragged a little hard on magic last week for, uh, our last episode for hiring the Pinkertons, right? Rightfully so. Hasbro looking at you. Cause we know you're the ones with the contract. <laughs> I know Hasbro's the one holding the contract. Want to talk about some of the things that they have that have come out recently. First things first, uh, we had the 40k commander decks yes. that came out. So those are just commander decks, right? That was all that was all they did. They didn't do like D and D where they had the different set, right? So commander is a tight is a game version in Magic. It's what a hundred cards, all singles. Yeah, so commander is a game format. Um, little Magic history. It used to be known as. Uh, EDH or Elder Dragon Highlander uh, because you would always have a uh, one commander and it used to be have to be one of the Elder Dragons when the game was first like imagined or the game type but it is a hundred card singleton deck the only thing you can have multiples of are basic lands everything else has to be only one of in the deck Uh, you do play with a card that is called a commander the commander has to be a unique card, so like a named card. Um, so some planeswalkers can be used as it, and then other like named characters. Uh, the commander sits outside of your deck, and you can summon them from the command zone at any given time, whenever you can pay the cost to bring them in. So other than that, uh, the game plays pretty much like standard magic. Normally you have ridiculous combos, crazy cards. It's a lot of like wild, swingy fun, usually. Um, it's, I've played it as, um, one versus one. I've played it as a set of four. I played this really weird mode where you had three people on each side of the table. And in order to actually be able to target the middle person, you had to beat one of the two people on the, on whatever side. So it was was crazy. But again, um, there are a lot of ways to play it. There are a lot of new ways that come out. Uh, magic has officially sanctioned it. Um, so there are like tournaments and things and ban lists and all that good stuff. 
But what we're talking about with 40K is this fantastic little crossover that they did where they did pre-built commander decks uh, for a few of the races. Is that factions? Factions, factions is the best okay. part of it. So, yeah, the four decks, uh, we've talked a little bit about 40K. I am a huge fan of 40K. Not so much for the, I don't play on the tabletop. I do paint minis and I the lore is just so deep. Yeah, it's 10,000 years worth of lore, and you're talking about 500 books. That's one thing about Warhammer people. They read. Like, they're serious readers. <laughs> so they broke this down into the four factions. Uh, there's the forces of the Imperium, which is humanity, which if you're thinking like, oh, those are the good guys, don't think that way. Don't. There are no good guys in 40K. Just accept it and move on. There's the Necrons, which are a set of, like, they're robot skeletons that were created, you know, millions of years ago. Now they're all waking up and causing havoc. Uh, they're pretty horrible. Uh, they just, that's their drive is to just kill off, you know, whatever else is alive. Uh, there's the Tyranid Swarm, which Tyranids think like the Zerg. They're just giant bugs that all they care about is adding biomass to their, you know, to, <laughs> to their group. So they're not really evil. They're just doing what they do. And then you have the ruinous powers, which is chaos. So the four chaos gods um, have tricked plenty of people into being on their side. That's what the whole Horus Heresy was when, you know, half of the good guys went to evil. The, the, they all play very different. Like the forces of man is a what a white, blue, black deck, mm-hmm. which that checks out. That checks out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very, very much so. Um, they have <laughs> when, you, when you're thinking about that. uh that color combination, it, it definitely echoes that. I, I think the one that probably hit the nail on the head for me was the Tyranid Swarm. Yeah. Um, yes. So it's, it's green, blue, red, which um, traditionally, was, traditionally was sliver colors, and they are exactly like what the slivers in Magic are. Um, so very much like uh, just kind of doing their natural thing, but they're definitely a swarm, and if you get in their way, you are, yeah, you're done. Right, they're just going to eat you as they crawl over. Yeah, yeah. So definitely, I think the design in them was really well done. I love the way that Magic, when they're doing sets like this, they'll take cards that they've already made previously and update the art, right, to reflect whatever universe they're doing. That's um, one of the things that I was really excited about because Magic always does such good art. Like the uh, the commanders for the forces of Imperium is Inquisitor Greyfax, which Inquisitors are they work for the Church of Mankind. Um, and they have all kinds of like crazy, like political power. Like if they get to a planet and they're like, man, this planet is too infested to save. They just destroy the planet, <laughs> glass it over, virus bomb it, something crack yeah. the planet's core. Yeah. So inquisitors are a big deal. Um, inquisitor Greyfax and then, um, uh, Mar- uh, Marinus Calgar, who is the chapter master for the ultramarines, which are one of the space Marine legions. They're like the poster boy space Marine legion. Like, they're all in blue. They're kind of Boy Scouts. Yeah. Yeah. They don't really have a lot. Of, I, I do not think they have a lot of fun lore to them. Um, yeah. Their Primarch is Rebute Gilliman or Robot Girly Man. Or he's got <laughs> hundreds of names that are not his uh, that he gets referred to. But this is the Chapter Master. So he's kind of like who's in charge since Primarchs aren't around. Um, I, but I love the artwork that they did with him. Even the, the Necrons. Uh, is the Silent King and the artwork that they did for him just looks so good. Yeah. You know, um, everything. Uh, Abaddon the Despoiler, it's kind of a, I've seen this artwork before, so I think they kind of just take took it from something else. Uh, but he's the commander for the Ruinous Powers. Um, 
Yeah, he was. This guy's been around for like ten thousand years, still causing trouble. Yeah, you know. Um, but I really like everything you said. Like when Magic does these crossovers, they do so well with it. The D and D one was done so well, well done on them for the creative side. Um, not so much sending Pinkertons after people. <laughs> now, uh, the forty k commander decks are out currently, so you can find them and buy them. Uh, but there is another set that is coming out soon. Uh, we're talking about the Lord of the Rings Tales of Middle-Earth. So that is a huge crossover. I mean, there are so many people that are Lord of the Rings fans. Like, there were lots of them when it was just the books. But then Jackson got involved. Like, the movies are considered one of the best trilogies ever. Like, this is magic. Like, hey, bring more people over here. We yeah. need your money. Yeah, absolutely. Um, they are making this set more like the D&D set, so there are going to be packs and things like that, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to just Commander decks. But I do want to specifically talk about the Commander decks because I think they did really, really awesome with the design choice. So, first and foremost, the set hits stores on June 23rd, so right around the corner as of the time this episode goes out. But let's look at the deck list real quick. Uh, the first deck list we have are the Riders of Rohan. Uh, so the main commander is Eowyn, Shield Maiden. The other optional commander is Aragorn, King of Gondor. And I love the artwork because <laughs> it's making people angry. If ever you want to know who in your friend group might have some racist tendencies, <laughs> what you need to do is get into sci-fi because eventually somebody will do something like make a card where Aragorn is black and people lost their shit. Be like, yep, there they are. That's the racist ones. Yeah. Uh, I also love, because Eowyn is also black, uh, and it looks like, it's hard to tell from the art, but it looks like she might have, like, dreads, and I think it's fantastic. Like, it looks amazing. So that deck is a red, white, blue, or America colors. It checks out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, The artwork on them are fantastic, of course, as always. This is a human's deck. Uh, you're looking to flood the battlefield uh, with as many cards as you can um, and then just try to overwhelm your opponents. Uh, and the commanders play really well into that. The next deck that we have is the Food and Fellowship deck. All hobbits. A hobbit time, deck. Baby. <laughs> uh, so this is actually a partner commander deck. So um, in these, if the commander says partner, you can actually have both of them in your command zone instead of just one. Um, and it's Frodo and Sam, of course. Uh, the deck colors are white, black, and green. I really like that they made Frodo's card a white, black card. Right. Uh, instead of just one or the other because it really shows like that conflict that he has in the story um and of course sam's is white green which i think is fantastic for sam because those colors are usually purity loyalty like the whole nine yards everything gardens yeah yeah gardens yeah (laughs) i'm learning magic yeah yeah um but yeah again fantastic design um really really cool uh I'm excited also for uh, they have some really cool token artwork. Um, They have like so they have birds in the food and fellowship deck, of course, Um, and they also have tree folk. But they are these cards. Obviously, these tokens have existed in magic, but this updated art, like the bird token has um, Minas Tirith in the background. Nice. Yeah. So a lot of really, really cool, cool art like that. Uh, The next one we have is the Elven Council. 
which has Gladriel as the main commander, and then you can also have Gandalf as a secondary commander. Uh, deck colors are green blue, which I think that screams elves. Yeah, all day it does long. all day long. Um, I don't. Gandalf, I think, is the only art that I'm not super excited about, and I don't know if it's just because my bias for having Sir Ian McKellen as Gandalf. I'm right? just yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah. Also, uh, they made Galadriel black too. So, <laughs> again, if you're if you have somebody that you want to put to the test, you know, especially if they're a Lord of the Rings fan, just show them this magic set and see what you think. All right, and the last one that we have is the Host of Mordor. Uh, so we have obviously Sauron is going to be your commander, or you have the optional commander of Saruman. Yeah, Sauron. I like the artwork for it. Uh, the colors of the deck are uh, Grixis colors, which are blue, black, and red. So the same as the Forces of Chaos from Magic 40k. This fits like evil wizard sorcerer types to a T. Yeah, so, that sounds right. Yeah. Um, but again, uh, fantastic artwork on the cards. Uh, one of the really funny tokens from this deck is the food token. So the food mechanic has been around for a little while in Magic. Um, in this one specifically, it shows like a person wrapped up in webbing because like sh- Shelob and yeah, the spiders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's food? That's food. Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, and then you also have like the uh, orc army tokens, um, which instead of just standard, like just regular orcs, they are actual the army ones. And they all are in like the Urukai armor with like the white hand of Sauron on them. Nice. Yeah. I like those. So like some really cool stuff. Um, I'm excited to take a deeper dive into the set um, itself. I think the. Yeah. So the set actually comes out on the 23rd. So you have access to not only the commander decks, but also to the standard cards and things like that right. as well. Okay. So the other thing that's been going on in the last couple of weeks was the UK Games Expo. Looking through the list of games that won awards. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of these that I don't even know. Uh, so we picked out a couple that we thought were uh, really good. First of all, uh, one of them I looked into was Best Board Game American Style. First of all, let's talk about this award. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> I, we always we laughed about this when we saw it uh, because it had um, best board game American style, like all in the same font, and then underneath it, it just has best board game parentheses European style. Yeah. So as if that was just like, oh, this is the best board game, right? Yeah. Right. We know <laughs> we know exactly what you mean. Very. <laughs> Very British way to slip that in there, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the best board game American style is Oathsworn. Yes, it is a game for one to four players that's focused on narrative choices, miniatures, and then combat encounters with the miniatures. Uh, it's set in the deep wood where a free company known as the Oathsworn fights for humanity's survival against unnatural horrors in, in the deep wood itself. The box for this game, just like the cover art is amazing. It's some giant rat surrounded by smaller rats being fought off by a group of, you know, obviously adventurers. Like there's there's a big barbarian leaping in from the side. There's some paladin looking dude doing paladin things. It's got this very Warhammer fantasy kind of feel to it yeah. with the giant rat tearing through stuff. It looks really good. Um, it's on Board Game Geek right now, and it's got like a 9-1 rating. Yeah. 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 
um, everything that I've read about this game seems like amazing. Like I want to get my hands on it. It is a very big, crunchy game for sure. Uh, there's lots of uh, like different routes you can take through the game. Like there's lots of narrative choice, like it says. Yeah, I, one of the things that stuck out to me on it um, were the miniature pieces um, are completely modular. Like, oh, yes. Um, so yeah, every single of the Oshorn uh, has arms that have different weapons in them. So as you're playing, if you pick up a different weapon, you can switch out your character's arm so that it has whatever weapon you're now using. Like to me, to me, that's one thing... <laughs> We we do a lot of 3D printing for our D&D, like, learn-to-play games, and I always try to find, like, miniatures that are as close as possible to how the players describe their characters. Yeah. Like, you know, down to the weapons they're using and things like that. Having something like this, it's fantastic. Where you could just swap them out? Yeah. 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 If you were to use these miniatures for your D&D game, you could be like, oh, look, now I could give so-and-so this really, really badass sword, even though he was using an axe, he'll still take it, right? <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's a really cool idea. Some people might say it's overkill. Personally, I think having the ability to customize your characters so they feel like yours is a fantastic way to go. Absolutely. Uh, some of the other games that were on here, uh, Frostpunk. Yeah, so it got the best strategic board game. This one is based off of a video game. Yes. So you can find it floating around on Steam as well. Yeah, so it's like a um, it's a game up to four players where you are basically leaders of this small colony of survivors in like a post-apocalyptic type world. Um, so you're trying to manage like your infrastructure, your citizens. Um, it's very like tough and challenging Everything from like you have your infrastructure that you're trying to keep up, your citizens are making demands of the things that they want. Right. Yeah. Um, the main like centerpiece of the board is this like giant tower. Um, that's it. And I'm all about like giant pieces in the middle of the board, even if they may not do anything. Um, I see Homelander from the boys. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, but yeah, it, this one looks really cool. I, I like the concept of it. Um, the, the kind of survival um, survival horror type games that have become really popular in video games lately. It's nice to see a little bit of crossover coming over from them. I really like the mechanic where the society that you're part of aren't just a resource. Like they make demands. Yeah. Like I'm I, that would, that's the big one I'm interested in getting my hands on this game just to find out exactly. Cause you know, are you going to listen to the demands? Are you going to be an inspiring leader? Um, are you gonna be a bureaucrat and just treat them like red tape? So I, I feel like either way could be a way to victory here. So yeah, it just yeah. it, you know it just depends on how you want to win. So that was another good one. Um, best role playing adventure was from Free League Publishing, and it was the Blade Runner RPG starter set. Blade Runner, you know, of course, is based off of the uh, the two movies now that they made, and the movies were based off of the book by Philip K. Dick. Uh, Do androids dream of electric sheep? Uh, and it, it's kind of a staple in the sci-fi community. Um, but to be able to play in that world uh, was, you know, that seems like a fantastic opportunity. And that ended up winning the award uh, for the best adventure. And that's their starter set. Yeah. You know, you pick it up and you should be ready to go in, you know, an hour. Yeah. Those were a couple of jumped out at us. And just because th- some things never change, best variant, Catan, Dawn of Humankind. <laughs> 
won that award. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so definitely an exciting UK Games Expo. Um, feel free to check out their website because there are a lot of other awards that they give out. Um, everything from abstract game, accessories, expansions, family game, whole nine yards. So take a look. You might find a new game that you really want to play and enjoy. So I know a lot of people out there are really excited for the Disney Lorcana game coming out from Ravensburger. But it seems like with everything else that's going on in the game industry right now, it wouldn't be right unless there was some like serious controversy to go along with it. <laughs> right. Uh, I know we've actually talked about Lorcana a couple times. Um, I'm excited to see the space that it, it picks up. Um, mm-hmm. I'm excited to see if it actually holds water compared to some of the larger like TCGs. Right. Right. Uh, and you know, with having the Disney name attached to it automatically gives it a lot of boost because it's going to have attraction to people who are normally not into trading card games. Sure. And a lot of options because Disney owns everything. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so what we're talking about specifically today is the lawsuit between Ravensburger and upper deck. That's right. Upper deck, like the baseball card company that I was not aware made card games. Yeah, so they have done a couple other games. Uh, the Legendary games, specifically. Okay. Uh, the ones, I know they had, like, uh, there was Marvel Legendary, which was their big one. But they had, uh, like, an Alien one, and they had uh, a Firefly one. And there were a couple others that they did that were all upper deck. They've done some other, like, smaller games, too. Um, and a couple of, like, quick runs of various cards. But mostly trading cards, baseball, that sort of thing. That's where their their main money lies. Right. So Lorcana, we've like I said, we've talked about that before. One of the things that I've kind of been surprised is I've talked to some people that are um, owners of stores. Yeah. And because we talked about, you know, Ravensburger shows up a lot in the big box stores. Like Target's a big one yeah. for carrying uh, their stuff. It seems that with Lorcana, there was some controversy before we even get into this. Uh, where they were like, yeah, you can order Lorcana, but you got to order like, I don't know, like $10,000 worth of puzzles too. Like stuff that doesn't move. Yeah. Yeah. So Ravensburger is also a big puzzle manufacturer. Right. Um, That was one of the things that they've always been known for. And honestly, I don't know if this is the first time they've done this because it makes so much more sense now in a lot of the game stores that were down in Greenville that they always had a large puzzle section. Like just a uh, wall of Ravensburger. Yeah, they always had a lot of Ravensburger puzzles. And I was like, that's weird. But they also, one of the stores also carried darts. So I was like, maybe they're just kind of like expanding their product lines. Sure, sure. You know? Um, but I would not be surprised if this is not the first time that this has happened. Okay. Okay. Because mm-hmm. I, like I said, we'd heard that from some people that we know that run like friendly local game stores and like toy stores and stuff like that. That, that was, yeah. it was kind of pushing out those businesses because they can't afford to have product that doesn't that they can't sell yeah yeah especially with as tight margins as most of them have to run right but yeah um so back to upper deck (laughs) back to the real controversy (laughs) um so yeah upper deck has filed a lawsuit against ravensburger claiming that lorcana is almost a carbon copy of a game that they currently have in production right and that's the word that they use, carbon copy, because I think that's going to be important moving forward with this. 
the kind of basis for these allegations come from the fact that the lead designer who is working on Lorcana previously worked with Upper Deck on a trading card game that they have in production. Right. The trading card game is called Rush of Icor. Right. Um, and in the lawsuit, they outline that they believe this designer who had rights and access to proprietary information on Rush of Icor took those designs and that information, went to Ravensburger, and then built this game, Lorcana. <laughs> With those ideas. Like, showed up, like, oh, you guys are making a Disney game? I got a great idea for yeah. it. And just laid that shit out and spread some Disney on it? Is that what we're saying happened? That's what it, I, that's what it feels like. So, yeah, there was an article that we just found that I was reading, and it's basically a lawyer from the UK kind of going through the lawsuit and explaining what it is. Because, I mean, to be clear, like, this is not a copyright lawsuit. Yeah, which games notoriously have issues with copyright because it's so easy to get around them when you're talking about a game. Right, because let's be honest, how many card games repeat the same mechanic that we see in Magic or that we see in Yu-Gi-Oh! or Pokemon? Right, with like, minor tweaks to it. Yeah, Right, yeah. one of them calls them like sprites, one of them calls them moats, like little things like that. Like the yeah. language and the mechanics stay really similar because... I mean, they're all a card game. I get it, yeah, right? There's only so many ways you can do something. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. So, what this uh, lawsuit alleges is that Ryan Miller, who was the uh, who the lead game designer. So, yeah. So, there's claims of fraud, claims of unfair dealing, claims that Miller breached his fiduciary duty to Upper Deck. Uh, Miller breached his contract. It's kind of like they're just, like, in this lawsuit, they're just shotgunning all the different ways that they think that he got away with this. Yeah, and so we watched a, an interview that was done with... Um, Jason uh, Mashera. Yeah. Yeah, so from Upper Deck. Uh, and he did an interview on a YouTube channel called Sports Card Live, right? Uh, which they've interviewed him before, mainly about sports cards. Um, but because they had him, they figured, hey, this is a good idea to bring this up. Um, and he was talking about a couple of different things in the interview. Uh, but the main focus um, that I liked from what he was saying, one, initially he was like, look, this is this is our game. Like uh, my team of designers who work for my company feel like they have been robbed out of the game that they have been designing for years. Right. Um, he says he understands though, that this places them in a very hard spot because obviously a lot of people are looking forward to Lorcana and wanting to play it, wanting to get their hands on it, the whole nine yards. But at the same time, like there is no good solution for him. Right. Cause either they pursue a lawsuit like they are, are doing and at best case scenario, Lorcana gets delayed and there's some things to be worked out with it, that sort of thing. I mean, worst case scenario, they they lose and then their designers from Upper Deck, like they don't have a product anymore. They really have to go back to the drawing board because you can't release a product that's the exact same as one that came out and they're planning on next year release too. It's going to be a whole year later. Right. I just, it's not a good place for him to be in and he... But the thing that I like most of what he said was that he feels obligated to the community 
um, in the way that he deals with this. Yeah. And he knows it's it's not a great scenario for the gaming community in general. Like he understands that and respects that, but he still feels that he needs to be true to his company. Sure. And I, I absolutely can agree with that. I appreciate the fact that it's like he acknowledges right. that, that there are going to be repercussions to the gaming community no matter how this shakes out. out. Yeah. So we were expecting to see Lorcana at Gen Con this year, right? Like that was going to yeah. be our first real look at it. Yeah. Um, they've released some of the cards. They actually released the full rule set too. That's how, that's what spawned this. Did they release rules. it or was that a leak? Uh, I think they released it officially. They <laughs> they gave like basically the rules layout, how things worked, how right. keywords and mechanics worked, that sort of stuff. Um, which, which he's claiming his team read and was like, Man, this sounds real familiar. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, it, it's very interesting. Now, Ravensburger has fired back publicly um, with a statement to Dicebreaker, uh, where their uh, Ravensburger North America's senior communications director, Lisa Kruger, said, we at Ravensburger stand behind the integrity of our team and the originality of our products. The baseless claims filed this week are entirely without merit, and we look forward to proving this in due time. In the meantime, our focus continues to be on developing and launching a fantastic game in August. I really, uh, yeah. Like, I don't know who to root for on this one. Uh, usually I have a clear bad guy, like anybody that uses the Pinkertons. <laughs> um, but I think this is really complicated, and... I think when they actually have to sit down in a courtroom, it's going to be real easy to see if this is in fact what happened. But like I said, the lawsuit alleges several different charges like, Hey, yeah. well he breached his contract and he was trying to steal so, money from us. So I'm going to, I'm going to play devil's advocate here with the designer. Right? Okay. Um, my argument would be in this case is how, how to prove that he just took the ideas and took them somewhere else and gave them to them. Because my my thought on this is going to be the fact that when you are creating something and in this creative process, um, especially as deep as I imagine as he got at um, Upper Deck, right? I imagine that influences your creative process down the road. Sure, right? And no matter, especially when you're you're going to be in a design space for a very similar product, I feel like it would be very difficult to not not bring in at least influences or ideas ab about the work that you were just doing. Sure. Especially when it's on such a similar product. Yeah. You know, so I, I don't know if I would, I would go so far as to say like he intentionally went over there he took the designs for whatever. Cause at, at least initially there doesn't seem to be any like Ravensburger, like coaxed him over for more money because they knew he was working on a thing. Right. Like apparently like we'll see, I guess what happens, but that doesn't seem to be like a nefarious purpose from Ravensburger in that regard. So I, I picture that it, I, I hope, I guess that it is more of a, a like inconvenient circumstance mm -hmm. that he was not careful in the way that he was working through his design process, as opposed to being like something of malicious intent. Right. I got you. Yeah. 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 But then again, we'll see. <laughs> I, like I said, when this one finally gets and they gets to the point where they sit down with um, elite, like in, in the legal realm, I figure like this is going to be pretty easy to prove or disprove. Yeah. You know, whichever way this goes, because 
like you said, it's difficult when you're talking game mechanics. It's hard to copyright them, but Upper Deck knows that, and they're not even going for a copyright. Yeah. So it's entirely possible on the other side, too, that they're like, hey, they're making a card game, and we've got a card game, and here's some things we can do to stall them. Because yeah. Upper Deck's Rush of Ikora isn't due out till later, where, like we said, Lorcana yeah. was talking August with Gen Con. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, it's it's very possible being a, a corporate world that it is, you know. Wizards of the Coast got me distrusting everybody. <laughs> so, I mean, who knows? We'll just have to see how things work out um, and what the proceedings say and how they go and all that sort of stuff. Uh, again, neither of us are lawyers. So I'm going to have that little preface in there. We do not give legal advice <laughs> if anybody's paying attention. <laughs> yeah, just in case anybody's listening and going to sue us, don't do that. We don't know what we're doing. Yeah. This is the completely the opinions of us reading what we read. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we'll, we'll see how that goes. Uh, but to continue our train of controversy today, uh, we have a, another article here um, that kind of deals with something that, that we talk about quite often, and that is making sure that everyone has a seat at the table. Um, but we're going a little bit further than that in talking about game design. Yes. Yes. So Elizabeth Hargrave, who um, is a fantastic designer by all accounts, right? she's responsible for Wingspan, which was a game that, I mean, was like a top of the lists for a long, long time. It still is probably the top of many people's lists. It, it's, it's a really great game. We've played it. Um, there's, I think, four or five expansions out on it now. I, I know they're pushing that. I, I mean, I, I would picture they're starting to run out of birds, but I don't know. I, <laughs> there's a lot of birds. Now, we're also not bird people, and I think we've had this talk before when we uh, reviewed the game. So bird people don't be getting in the comments and yelling at us. Um, you know how many species of birds there are? This game can go on forever. Uh, but yeah, basically what the game is, is you... Um, are collecting birds and you basically your board is you have different habitats you can do things to create uh you know a better environment to pick which you know get your hands on different birds um and then you kind of score it at the end yeah it's it's definitely an engine building game around birds yeah that's yeah, yeah. right which i mean there are great engine building games out there like that is a mechanic that is well known that a lot of people love um and i think that's important as we get into this discussion I think this that game really made things approachable for a lot of people. Sure. Uh, I think that's why a lot of people... It's not like a... It's not a... I've never played board games game. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I don't picture it's not quite a beginner level, but I picture it's something you can pick up pretty quickly. Um, but the controversy we're talking about today uh, is actually some statements that were made about a... Uh, was it a tweet that she posted? Yes. Uh, so on Twitter... Uh, she put up, uh, so I would like to offer some data, not as a criticism of the Spiel de Jar organization, uh, but a criticism of the pipeline. Something is wrong with the system that leads to these pictures. And it talks about the nominees for the Spiel de Jar, which is the big game uh, award given in Germany, since 1999. There are five women, 103 men, uh, and no nobody that identified as non-binary. Uh, and there's been no women who have uh, been nominated in the last two years as far as game design goes there's a whole series of tweets that she did kind of pointing to this right as things go um <laughs> so somebody made comments and the person that made comments was ryan dancy who was the coo of alderock which is aeg yeah games 
I'll just read his statement. Um, I've taken more than 1,000 game pitches since 2016. I would say that less than 10% of those are from female designers. Effectively, none of the games AEG would publish. We did a call for submissions from female designers specifically, and we got one publishable design, and that is Mariposas. There have been a couple of pitches that came close, most commonly where a female pitched with a male designer. There is one team of two female designers that pitched great, but their games are too light for us. I know why we didn't proceed with those pitches, but they were at least in the ballpark. Typically, when I'm pitched by a female, the game tends to fall into one of several broad categories. It's either a game about politics in general, we don't publish games about politics, it's a party game, which we don't publish party games, and it's a pitch from a designer very early in their design journey, and the game isn't competitive in the modern market. It usually is either too much like another game, very generic, or more of an idea than a game design. I've never been pitched a war game by a female. I've never been pitched a two-player fighting game by a female. I've never been pitched a giant fighting robot game by a female. I actually don't think there's much of a market in those categories because there's so much competition, but I wonder if a game designed by a female would be orthogonal in the existing designer pattern and produce something remarkable. I think there's a significant gap between when someone decides to try and be a game designer and when they produce their first publishable game. Life in that gap consists of a lot of rejection and negative criticism. I wonder if that gap accounts for a good part of the missing female design cohort. Females are socialized in the West to avoid situations where they're subjected to a fairly harsh criticism in their ability to create ideas. Males are socialized to take the punches and keep moving forward. Getting across the gap is how you turn someone into a real game designer who gets paid for their work and who makes designs that are attractive to publishers. So far, we haven't seen much award consideration go to games that exist almost entirely in crowdfunding projects. I know there are many more females doing game design and production via crowdfunding who just don't connect with the publishers. The nature of the SDJ, the Spiel de Jar, is that crowdfunding game is effectively shut out from consideration. So that was his comments. And that one paragraph right in the middle is the one that I think really drew a lot of attention. That women are just socialized to basically give up when they run into you know, any sort of you know negative response. Right. But, like, but men, we just soldier on. Like, really? You think that's the problem? Yeah, so um, in all fairness, he did come out later and apologize for his comments. <laughs> yeah, he did. Um, but again, that's... He got a 12-hour shellacking is what he got. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think rightfully so. Now, initially, I think some of his his lived experience is something to be accounted for. Sure. As somebody who is, works for a publisher mm-hmm. uh, who has had many games pitched to them... Um, his lived experience, I think, does apply to this discussion. But to take that the step further that he did and say, well, the reason is because women are not able to roll with the punches when right. they when they get negative feedback, they shut down. Right. So we obviously are against large stereotypes, um, sure. except when it comes to the people who hire the Pinkerton. So obviously, yeah, that yeah, yeah. stereotype fits. And Monopoly. Um, yeah, and Monopoly. But other than those two... <laughs> I, and you're right. He did come back out like the next day and he's like, hey, yesterday I engaged in a discussion about a lack of representation of women as designers in the gaming community. It was not my finest moment. Um, and he did come out. He's like, hey, I'm embarrassed about the tone that I set. Um, i embarrassed about his contribution contributions to the discussion and how that may have affected it overall. Um, and he said he's sorry for any harm that he may have caused and offense that he's given. Right. 
So I appreciate that. Right. And he right. does go on to say that, hey, here at AEG, uh, they are going to do some things. We're going to actively connect with designers from underrepresented demographic groups, especially women, and offer mentorship and development support for the projects, uh, even if AEG is not the publisher of the game of that kind. Right. And hopefully that holds true and they're able to make good on those promises. Because this section is not a bash on him or or necessarily the things he said. Um, I think it's important for us to look at this as a uh, as an issue as a whole. Yeah, sure. Um, representation in game design. Yes. Because, um, so if you didn't know, Eric Lang has actually talked about this before. Okay. Because uh, Eric Lang is... Who, popular designer. He's responsible for... Uh, Blood Rage. Blood Rage. Yep. Rising Sun. Rising Sun. Yep. Uh, Ankh. Uh, a lot of really, really good, well-received games. Right. He, he's done a lot a lot of stuff and it's like and most of his games are those heavy chunky games too like they're serious games right mm-hmm. so uh and he's definitely a name that's well known in the industry right so if you didn't know though eric lang is also a person of color oh yeah um and he has actually had a couple of discussions about representation in board game design um because again he saw the same kind of thing is that the demographic for board game designers is oftentimes white and male. Yes. Uh, I, I think this brings up a very good talking point about how do we get more diversity in the board game design scene. Right. Um, and I, I think it comes from getting diversity in the hobby in general. Sure. I know that with people that we've talked with, like, you know, like we've had Leslie on, we've had Tina on, we've had people that are, gamers players people that are part of this hobby not so much in the game design realm but even just in the like even oh my god uh the girlfriend has we've talked about several times loves playing D with us but how many women have we talked to that we've invited to one of our you know learn to play tables where it's like oh man i've always wanted to do this but i never felt like i had an in yeah 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 um and i i think that probably translates into why we don't have the representation from yeah. um, especially women specifically, since we are referring to this article um, in board game design at like the spiel de jars level. Sure. Yeah. Uh, women are, uh, women is kind of what they're talking about, but even with um, Hargraves, she talks about women and non-binary people. Yeah. Talk about people of color, you know, because like they said, the pre- when you're talking about board game design, predominantly you're talking white cis men. Yeah. Um, I feel like that trend is starting to work its way out, though. Um, As we are diversifying the hobby in general. Right. Right. As we are reaching out to underrepresented groups, um, not only to find their place at the table, I I hope that it is a natural product of that than to find themselves a place at the design table. Yes. Right. And I hope as more people find a passion in this hobby, that that passion turns into them designing their own games. Um, I, I know one of the things that um, Elizabeth Hargrave has on her website is a link that is women and non-binary designers uh, where you can go in and um, actually see lists of games designed by both women and non-binary designers. Uh, one of the things though she says on that page is, in 2018, 
there were only seven games of the top 200 on board game geek that had a non-male designer involved um and she says it's now up to 14th <laughs> so i so it doubled but it's still didn't i mean you're still talking such low, low you're talking numbers. about seven percent still yeah. of the top 200 um which I'm not saying that every game that is designed by a woman needs to be on the top 200. No. But I think it shows the breakdown of game designers versus um, or like where they fall. Right. I, I have a feeling this is going to continue to grow, that number specifically. Um, and as more people find their way into the hobby, the hobby itself becomes more diverse. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like that's going to keep growing. Um, but what are some of the ways that we can help continue to grow that? Sure, because I think, like you said, it's a pipeline, right? And a lot of game designers, especially like the men, have already been in that pipeline. Like yeah. they were able to start and move through that. Like we're looking at the end result with the Spiel de Jar, right? Right, right. They're like, oh, well, there hasn't been a woman nominated in the last two years. Well, that's because we're not we're not letting women in early on to begin that. Yeah. Like, a couple things that, you know, the, the COO of AEG was talking about is right. You've got to get people in the pipeline to get the game designed. Yeah. Now, his, his, and his analysis of, oh, yeah, but women just give up wasn't great. But I do like that as he came back, was like, yeah, I was wrong. Whether he realized how bad that sounded and how wrong he was, or if somebody from legal picked up the phone and was like, hey, you can't say stuff <laughs> like that, man. Right, right. Uh, either way, what they've said that they're going to do moving forward, I think is a huge help to what we're talking about here. Yeah, absolutely. Because, uh, I mean, I think the question is, obviously it's not a stereotypical women give up early. To me, it's probably more women don't have the resources to, or when somebody comes along and looks at their game and says, that game's garbage or whatever. Right. I feel like a lot of times probably a a man would have somebody come along and go, I think you should actually do this and let's, let's work on this. Right. Whereas a lot of times, especially a woman in a space that is predominantly, you know, inhabited by men probably does not get that same support. Right. There's a lack of mentorship for them. Yeah. Because as you're starting out anything, you, the key is to find somebody that's good at it to <laughs> yeah. teach you. Right. Yeah. 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 That's how this goes. And uh, yeah, I think that is, the again, and that's a lot of the problem that we see with women in the hobby in general, is they are never given the opportunity to have that in. Yes, absolutely. Um, so, what in the ways that we can help out, I feel like, are, um, you know, actively looking for designers who do not fit that cis white male norm. Sure. Right? And taking a look at their games, you know, if you like their games, even better, talk about their games. Let people know that you like their games. Yep. Um, uh, especially at cons, uh, every single gaming convention has a like play test room. Yes, where it's all designers bringing their games, whether they're half baked or full baked, to this room to have people sit down and play them and give feedback on them. Yeah, right. If that's something you enjoy doing or something you want to do, like look for these designers who do not fit that cis white male norm. And play their games. Give them feedback. Like, tell mm-hmm. them what you think about it. Yeah. I Again, we're going back to some of the comments where he talked about, you know, I've never been pitched a war game by by a woman. Yeah. Um, I've never been pitched, you know, a, a, a giant robot fighting game by a woman, which was very specific in its genre. Um, 
Sam, and if you're listening, there might be an opportunity for a giant robot game. It's, it's giant robots that deliver pizza. It's yeah. going to be awesome. Pitch it to AED, they'll eat it right up. <laughs> you know, I... And that's one of the things that, you know, as he said that, but then he says, I don't know if there'd be a lot of competition because those, that part of the genre is really flooded. Like you can find plenty of fighting games and war games and, you know, one-on-ones and two player battle games. Like that's pretty prevalent. Um, And I think that kind of, again, speaks to, as we talk about diversity, it's not just, you know, I want a woman designer to have a woman designer. It's like, I need people to design other than cis white men because it expands the possibilities for the games that we get. Yes, and that's what we have talked about multiple times when it comes to role-playing games, Mm -hmm. how it's so rewarding to have people from other backgrounds play in your games because of the experience that they bring to the table. Absolutely, absolutely, because things are going to seem different. They're going to look different to everybody, and it's all based on what we know. It's all based on our backgrounds, where we came from, the experiences in our lives, and to close out a good, solid what? 50% of the population, you're losing 50% of possible life experiences that you're never going to have. There's certain things I'm never going to go through. Like, I hit the genetic lottery as a cis white guy. Um, I walk into a room and say things, and people will consider them as, oh, maybe this guy knows something, right? I could be BSing it the whole way, and we know that happens. Um, But yeah, absolutely, you're, you're turning away a lot of experience, and you're turning away a lot of possibility and that is the whole point of diversifying, mm-hmm. you know, in, in in any, I think, corporate situation, but especially if we're talking about the realm of game design. Because, I mean, good Lord, there are games out there I haven't even heard of that are fantastic. I was realizing this as we were looking through the UK's Game Expo, like, here's the awardees. And I'm like, I don't know any of these games. And yeah. I think I'm pretty, like, well-versed in games. But, you know, there's so much out there. And then there's so much more that could be. Yeah. Letting people in here. So things that we can do to help, like you said, looking for games from people that are from marginalized communities, from uh, from creators that are not your traditional creators. Yeah. And I mean, Hargrave, yeah, you talked about Hargrave's website. Um, if you're somebody who is wanting to get into game design, finding that mentorship program out there because they're starting to be more prevalent as well. Yeah. If you look at even Elizabeth Hargrave herself. Mm hmm. The games that she has designed are have all been like outside of the norm. Yes. So obviously we have Wingspan we talked about, but the new one, Mariposas. Mariposas. Um, it's about butterflies. Yeah. 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 But I don't know of any other games about butterflies. Um, she has a game called The Fox Experiment, uh, which is based on um, geneticists in Siberia who tried to replicate the domestication of dogs, but with foxes. Okay. Like. <laughs> I would have never known to be able to try and put uh, that to a game. Like uh, this is the kind of thing that these are not like, this is not something I would have ever thought to build a game around. Exactly. I know when we first broke out wingspan, uh, I was not excited about it. I was like, I don't know if this is going to be a game that I'm going to enjoy, but I mean, it was, it is a really well done game. The mechanics yeah. are solid. The gameplay is good. It, there's no like real direct conflict or anything in it. The artwork is amazing. Like there are so many good aspects to that game that make it the game that has been popular for years. Mm-hmm. And again, it's not a robot fighting game. Yeah, <laughs> it, exactly. It, yeah. it is centered, and the theme is around something that I would not have. Um, I would not have suspected that I would enjoy as much as I did. Yeah, 
And that's, again, just illustrates the point that, you know, when you bring in people from that have different experiences, that they will oftentimes reward and enrich whatever it is that you're bringing them in on. Absolutely. Um, and it also made me realize where my bias was with a lot of games as well. I was like, oh, yeah, I do kind of like games that, you know, <laughs> that are fighting games. Like, I'm looking back at a lot of the games that we play yeah, or have played that I really, uh, that I enjoyed. Um, and yeah, I definitely had a bias towards, uh, some games. I'm sure all, I'm sure if, I'm sure if most board gamers are honest, they do too. So yeah. So, I mean, I guess here's your call to action is if you are in the board game community and you do love what we do. And if you're listening to this podcast by now, you understand that we have a firm belief that everybody has a seat at this table. Um, it's one thing to talk about it. It's one thing to, uh, you know, profess that that's what you believe. It's completely another to take steps to ensure that those people are getting their place at the table. Yeah. You know, giving them the fair shake they deserve and expanding what you think board games are. Running through emotions high and low, holding on or letting go, I'm fighting another day. So in our Kickstarter roundup, we're going to have something that's a little bit different. Uh, instead of a board game based on a video game, we're going to talk about a video game based on a board game. And that is going to be Pathfinder Abomination Vaults. Yeah, so I, I saw this one come across um, normally when we're doing crowdfunding you know, research. We look specifically for like tabletop games. Uh, but obviously I saw Pathfinder and I was like, oh, what is this? <laughs> right. Uh, looking through it, I mean... It, it, it's kind of playing off of uh, the popularity that you're getting on like Diablo right now. It's another ARPG out there that uh, kind of hack and slash. Uh, yep. it, it's kind of a it's kind of a brainless good time, right? Mm-hmm. For those of you that are into the video game side of this, so it's Pathfinder, so Paizo Press. Yeah, uh, but I thought this was interesting that they're actually putting it up on a Kickstarter. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it it looks very straightforward. Uh, it kind of reminds me of. Um, when they did the Baldur's Gate games, kind of the newer ones, not right. like the original, yeah, the yeah. original two, um, where they were very much just kind of you had these four characters to choose from, and then you went through this adventure. Um, this looks to be more, um, more based, a little bit heavier into like the Pathfinder system than just the lore, because I know that one was D and D lore, but it wasn't the mechanics behind it were not like ultra D and D, you know, right. But yeah, this will look really cool. Uh, there are four characters you can choose from. So there is a barbarian, a wizard, a cleric, and a ranger. So this is the first game. That's uh, a co-op hack and slash ARPG based on pathfinder. Right. So the first rewards tier is a digital download. So it's about 31 us dollars. Um, it unlocks the deluxe role in the Discord server, and you get a digital download of the game. And you get your name in the credits. Woo! Uh, well, and then it kind of goes up from there. There's this 50, one that's like 53 bucks, which it gives you uh, the Abomination Vault game-exclusive digital manual. Uh, I, don't, <laughs> I don't need no manual. We got to read stuff. <laughs> Uh, and then the double up bundle is about fifty seven, and you get two digital downloads on Steam for you and your friends, so you can partner up because it is a co op game. So I like that they give you that option. Yep. 
Uh, and then there's some early bird stuff in there. Uh, there's still some left. There's a lot left. The it's seventy one dollars. It's includes the uh, digital art book from Pathfinder, the Abomination Vaults game. It gives you the soundtrack um, and an epic role in our Discord server. Nice. Yeah. Uh, and then it goes up to an eighty three dollar one, which is the premium digital bundle, which is the same thing. It's just it's not the early bird. Uh, private early access you can get for about $103 if you're really into the Pathfinder ARPG thing. Uh, and it says you'll be able to start before everyone else. The full party bundle is four Steam keys for it, so you can have you and three of your best friends log on and uh, go through this together. You also get private early access with that one as well. I was going to say, and yeah, yeah. Um, and then there is the collector's box. And then the premium collector's box. The collector's box goes for like two sixteen. Uh, you get a printed manual, printed art book, an official T-shirt, four art prints, sticker packs, metal pins, an exclusive game miniature, the legendary Discord role on your name, and an elite section in our game credits. So if you really want to throw some money at this, uh, and then there's like a two fifty. Uh, it's the collector's box plus a campaign coin and a custom Pathfinder. Abomination Vaults game dice set and bag. Uh, cool. they, yeah, they really know how to ring people in. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then the Ultimate Collector's Box goes for like three twenty-five. Um, you get the art prints. You get uh, the box play mat, a custom play mat, uh, an extra miniature that's exclusive from the game. Everything from the Premium Collector's Box. Um, geez, and then it goes up to there's a thousand dollar. There's a thousand dollar tier. Work with our design team to create an item within our set of parameters that will appear in the game. Also include everything from the Ultimate Collector's Box. So you get to help design something in the game. Oh, it keeps going. Oh, yeah. And then there's a 2500 where you create an NPC in the game. Uh, wow. And then a $5,000. Join the team for a whole day. Collaborate with our different teams. Take part in meetings. Share your feedback. Wait, you get to go to work with them for a day? <laughs> I don't think that's the prize that they think it is. <laughs> you have to pay to go to work with them for a day. <laughs> but, uh, then there's there's a $5,000 box that uh, you get an exclusive bust figure of Amari, which is one of the uh, characters from the game, uh, hand-painted and signed by our CEO and artist Frederick Martin. That's kind of cool. Uh, a 30-minute video call with our game's creative director and CEO. Ask them anything. Uh, and it keeps, yeah, and there's a couple of those. You can get whichever, uh, the bust of whichever character you would like. So, uh, this is one of those projects where if you really want to throw some money at it, there are options for you. But the game itself looks good if you're into an ARPG. Um, and again, you know, this is going to benefit uh, Paizo Press. So, if you're a Pathfinder fan, uh, this looks like something you should check out. Yeah. I've... It's got like 11 days left time as time of time of recording. And they have not yet hit their uh, pl- their goal. Yep, they are at 287,000 of a 310,000 goal. So, uh, they still got a little bit of work to do, but they do have about 10 days, 11 days left. So, hopefully, they can get there. All right, next up the Omni Dice. I can't help, but I can't help read this and not hear the Omnisaya in the back of my mind from Warhammer 40K. <laughs> so, uh, and it kind of fits. It kind of fits. So this is a 
15 and 1 d6 die. You're thinking, how does that even work? We thought the same thing too. And then we looked at it. Each of the faces has a different um, amount on it. Yeah. Basically, it's a uh, kind of like a wheel that has like a little ball or several balls. Like a roulette it. wheel. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. In the dice. And it substitutes for, it can roll 5d6, a d10 or a percentile, 2d20, so you have advantage, disadvantage, 2d12s, 2d8s, or 2d4s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then all of the single versions of those, if you would like. Uh, it's it's really, like, at first I kind of looked at it, I was like, ah, this seems a little gimmicky. But the more I watched the video, the more I was like, no, no, I could see this being useful. Within the design space now on RPGs and games that require you to roll dice, there's a lot of options out there. Yep. So I was looking at this one and I was a little kind of, like, concerned. Would I actually give this a try? And the big thing that got me was uh if you look down they actually do roll comparisons with a couple of different versions of dice yeah and how uh this one actually stays more neutral it it doesn't have like huge spikes in its uh like frequency of rolls yeah right so it i mean it looks legit it looks like it would be a legit rolling option yeah i i think it's nice and compact instead of carrying a full set of dice you only have this one um, they look like they are um, really well made. They have some pretty cool color options as well. Um, they they make a little carrying case for it. I don't know if I would ever wear or use that carrying case, but it's there. <laughs> it's an option for you. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let's talk about pricing on it. So um, the let's see so the super early bird right now that you can get it for is $58 MSRP looks like it's going to be 88 on these yeah um which is not bad for what it is uh cuz if you're looking at getting a set of like metal dice um they start around 30 bucks and can go all the way up to you know 60 or 70 easy yep. um so this for what it is i think it's unique um, I think the $58 price point is actually not bad. No, that's right. I feel like that's right in there. Yep. Um, you can get the super early bird and get two of them for $116. Um, and then it kind of goes up from there. Yeah. Uh, depending on how many you want to buy, you can buy up to 10 of them um, for $560. Yep. Um, you can get the little uh, leather cover for 18 bucks. Um, or you can get even get a mystery bag of regular dice too, if you would like to. Um, that will ship to you before Christmas. I feel like that's a little buy our new super secret dice and maybe add on some extra ones just in case. Hey, <laughs> never know. Maybe they're just trying to get a little extra. Um, like, so- I, like I saw, I don't need dice. Maybe the dice need me. <laughs> Have you ever thought about that? <clears throat> yeah. So it looks like they're looking at shipping uh, December this year, actually. So that's coming up pretty quick. Take yeah. a look at it uh, again. Like when I first looked at it, I was kind of like, "Eh, it's a little, it's it's a little like catchy." But no, I could see that I could see me using one of these. Yeah, especially uh, if you travel to play a lot. Yeah, um, and if you are a dice goblin or greater, uh, and you have a ton of dice, this might be something easy for you to be able to get and just take with you real quick. Um, so currently, they have reached their goal uh, by 
by a lot. A lot. So they're definitely funding. So if it's something you would like to jump in on, there's still 17 days left this time of the recording. Um, so yeah, take a look at it, see what you think. It might be uh, your next new favorite dice set. All right, and last up, uh, we have the Triangle Agency, a paranormal investigation TTRPG. We were looking at this one, and there's a video, you know, like their introduction video, and it is done so well. Yeah. Um, you have to go watch it and just, like, get the full feeling of what this is. So basically, you uh, are recruited by an agency because you have had contact with a supernatural anomaly, and you are able to to investigate them and understand them you get some special powers from them um the the character concepts uh you like there's your the anomaly that gives you your supernatural power there's the reality so you have to deal with the responsibilities of you know are you a are are you a father are you do you have a a nine to five job how does that work yeah and then kind of the role that the agency assigns you and it kind of tells you how you have to behave on the job Really interesting build, and the system that it uses is the the system looks like it's new. It's a D four system, uh, and you're it looks like you're trying to roll threes. That seems to be the positive there. I I I, I don't know if it's necessarily positive, but it does make <laughs> things happen. This gives me very much uh, Umbrella Academy vibes. Yeah, the game looks it looks like it's a good time. Uh, so let's talk about how much money they're making. Yeah, so uh, you can get a digital-only version uh, for $30. Uh, you get a PDF of the core rulebook and uh, the vault missions for the Triangle Agency. The core set, yeah. The, a core set comes with a hardcover edition of the rulebook and agency-approved dice. If you watch the like the intro video, you, you get why that's funny. Like The yeah. agency's got their hands in everything. Yeah, um, and then let's see. You also get the PDF version as well with that set. Yeah, uh, ninety dollars gets you the complete set, uh, which you get the hardcover rulebook, uh, the PDF version, the physical copy of the vault, uh, as well as the PDF version, and then a physical copy of the Triangle Agenda. Uh, you also get agency approved dice, and if unlocked with their stretch goals, uh, you get the normal box set and classified dice. Nice. So the triangle agenda is like your character organizer and the vault is a kind of like a medium level like uh, adventure to put your uh, adventuring group through. Uh, And then there is the archive transcendence. This option allows you to put your name in the credits of the book and will set your field team up for success with a mission by running the triangle agency uh, an, an adventure land by the lead designer also includes all the previous rewards. And that one's $333. I'm telling you, yeah, threes are a thing. Yeah. So well yeah. done. So their, their goal just ever uh, that was $9,999. Yeah. So it's definitely like uh, a thing of threes. I love that they're, they're holding this theme all the way through. <laughs> yeah. Like their stretch goals and stuff. were all like around threes and that sort of thing. Uh, the normal box set is unlocked, so if you were to buy the uh, complete set or above, you do get like a sturdy flip-top box modeled after the briefcase from the game um, to put your materials in. Um, so yeah, and uh, you also get the bonus classified dice as well. That's also been unlocked. The fi- the top tier that you can uh, 
pay for is sixteen sixty five, and it gives you a copy of the books, all the dice. It also gets you what's the the ripple gun, which must be it's a prop from the game. Yeah, uh, this thing looks wild. <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously it's just like uh, artist rendering right now, but yeah, it looks pretty crazy. <laughs> it looks like there's only three of those available. So I mean. Uh, run, don't walk, I guess, if, yeah. if that's your thing. Uh, so, yeah, it, it just it looks like it's a lot of fun. I always dig the games that have some like uh, like a deeper background to them, you know. Yeah. Uh, and I like the way that reading through the character creation where, you know, you have your powers, you have what the agency gives you, but you also have your life you have to deal with. Um, yeah, it, it also kind of... Um it kind of gives me like a Westworld vibes from like the newer seasons where like all the people are controlled by like that, the building in the center of the city mm-hmm. and like the tone that goes out kind of thing. Um, yeah, like that's, uh, <laughs> that's kind of the vibe that I get, but take a look at this one. Definitely watch the video. Fantastically done. Um, just really, really cool, um, project all around. Definitely one I'm considering backing, if nothing else, just to support them for like the, the, the video was good enough that, you know, I feel like I owe them 60 bucks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah right. Yeah, yeah. And with that, the final girl, Lori, has been dealt the last points of damage by Hans the Butcher. Flipping over her final health token shows three hearts keeping her in the fight. One last week attack card and roll. Two successes. Lori has defeated Hans the Butcher. For the Dapper Meeple, I'm Jim. And I'm Josh. Good night, everyone. Thanks, everyone, for sticking around and listening to our show. If you enjoyed it, let me ask you a favor. Follow us and leave us a like wherever you get your podcast. It really helps us out. And if you have anything to say back to us, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook by searching for The Dapper Meeple. On Twitter, our handle is at The Dapper Meeple, or email us at dappermeeplegaming at gmail.com. And as always, we'll save you a seat at the table.